Well, let's open our time uh, before we enter into the Word of God this morning. Let's open our time together with prayer. Oh, gracious, almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we do convene this morning to worship You and to give You the glory that Your works of creation and redemption and sustaining of all humanity so rightly deserve. We thank You that You have not been a... God that's remained distant from us, but like a mother, you have nurtured us, and you have fed us and cared for us, and that you have given us the milk of your word uh, through the prophets. We thank you for this prophet Habakkuk that we are going to be considering this morning, that he was a man of faith, a man who could... Uh, be open with you about his struggles and understanding his struggles in dealing with uh, the evils that he saw befalling his people Israel and his deep concern how that called your character and purpose into question. Lord God, as we continue into this prophecy today, we ask that you would uh, give us the eyes of faith that we might see... um, Scripture as a whole and see your words uh, to back it here both as they applied to him but also how they applied to your new covenant people your church and it is as the church of Jesus Christ that we gather this morning and we ask that his spirit dwell richly among us and teach our minds and hearts and instruct us uh, both for believing but also for living out that belief in our world. And we ask it in His name. Amen. If you turn with me to the book of Habakkuk, and and for those of you who might not have been here last week, um, let me just give you um, a brief rundown of, of where we are in this particular book. So Habakkuk, the first couple of chapters are are structured as a conversation between the prophet and God. So in chapter 1, we see Habakkuk lifting up complaints to the Lord of how long and why is this violence taking place in the midst of his people. And then we see God's response, that he is not delaying, that he is going to respond to this violence, and he's going to respond to uh, Judah's internal violence by bringing this violent oppressor of the Chaldeans. Then last week we saw in particular how um, Habakkuk reacted to God's reply. So um, God's reply that he was going to deal with Israel's violence by raising up violent Chaldeans raised a, a second complaint on Habakkuk's part. And we noticed particularly last week how he started off that complaint acknowledging that God is sovereign, that God is is just, that God uh, was the good ruler of all. But acknowledging that raises the problem for Habakkuk. How can this good, all-powerful God use this evil Chaldean people to judge his righteous Judah? And in particular, at the end of, of chapter 1, he, he 
states in, in verse 14, You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. And then, but God's also made these Chaldeans who indiscriminately fish among men. So Habakkuk's problem, his struggle arises out of the fact that, that God has made men like fish and he's made this cruel fisherman, the Chaldeans. And these actions seem to violate God's own character as well as the specific promises of God to his chosen people. So today we're going to consider um, uh, God's response. And again, we left um, Habakkuk at the end of, or the beginning of chapter 2, verse 1, and I'll read the entirety of chapter 2. But we, we start with Habakkuk's position, waiting for God's response. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time, It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise, and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoil for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink and pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself. And show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you. And utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you. As will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth. 
to cities and all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols? Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, to a silent stone, Arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. So in this response of God to Habakkuk's second complaint, we see two basic parts. One is this sort of prelude to the vision. Uh, And then we see this pronouncement of five woes upon the Chaldeans. And I want to focus um, most of our time this morning on this this beginning of, of the vision, this first part where we see God contrasting um, the status of, of the proud with the status of the faithful. So first, look at verses 2 and 3. So here we have sort of a preface to the actual giving of the vision. What does the preface in verses 2 and 3, 3 indicate about this coming vision that God is about to show Habakkuk? It's true. Yeah, we've seen this before that, um, you know, and again, it's hard for us to understand exactly how prophets came by their their message. But um, even even uh, in the um, this preface to the vision in verse two, write the vision. So, you know, however he's getting it from God, he's being told to write it to make it verbal. Um, But yeah, it's awfully wordy for a vision. (laughs) Andy. Yeah, these. Yeah, to make it plain. So one, write it down. Two, make it plain so anybody can read it. Put it on tablets. And then this end of verse two, so he may run who reads it. So it's as if God's picking up on the image that Habakkuk had given at the beginning of the chapter. Habakkuk has positioned himself as this watchman who's on the tower waiting for God's response. And God sort of picked up on that imagery saying, okay, here comes uh, the response. Prepare just like a watchman would announce it and send runners to bear the, the message of, of an enemy's coming or um, whatever uh, the watchman sees that he needs to publicize. He would have runners at the ready. So Habakkuk is told to t- take this message that he's been waiting for and to send it. By the fastest runners to the ends of the of the land. What else do we see in verses two and three prefacing this vision? So we've got this picture of 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 uh, this vision is, is is true. Write it down. Distribute it. Yeah, we have this this interesting dimension of time. It it may seem to be to blame, but wait for it, Mark. Or no, Pat. 
I saw a hand, so, you know, my peripheral vision. There's a reason I can never hit a fastball. <laughs> yeah, and it... Yeah, and, and notice the contradictory sort of aspects of the vision's time. So in verse 3, the vision awaits, so it's sort of pausing for its appointed time, for its appointed end, for that very moment uh, it's supposed to, to come. It waits, but it also hastens to the end. So it's we've got this picture of the vision awaiting the point in time, but at the same time hastening to its end. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. So then we've got this picture. It seems slow, but on the same, at the same time, it's not delaying. So we've got this sort of contradictory picture of time between the vision's uh, proclamation and its coming to pass. Yeah, and it's the, the, the difference between a human perception of time and uh, God's perception of the time. Um, hold on, let me... Calvin put it this way. From the human perspective, the vision may appear to tarry in its fulfillment because of the long period involved in its realization. But from God's perspective, the certainty of its fulfillment precisely according to the divine plan cannot be questioned. Um, so we've got this sort of two perspectives. From Habakkuk's perspective, there might be this, well, is it going to come to pass? There could be that, that moment of anxiety. But from God's perspective, it's moving. It's not slowing down. It's not delaying. It's going to happen. Andy. Yeah, to, it, you know, this vision is is going to come to pass. Um, there, there, and you know, you'll see that um, I, I've appointed it for that time. Saw another hand somewhere. Yes. Let's flip to that passage. I'm really glad um, you you brought that up because um, we see that uh, the author of Hebrews is applying these same words, but but we see a change. Um, uh, for the, the the ESV has it yet. Uh, so Hebrews chapter ten verse thirty seven. Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. Um, uh, let's see, I think I've got the NIV written down somewhere. He, the NIV uh, has, he who is coming will come, he will not delay. So they're um, making it very personal. So it's not just um, this sort of generic, neutered vision that it might be slow in coming, but it's personified. Yeah, this picture of, and and that really fits for where he's going to go from here, contrasting the arrogant and puffed up, this uh, people that 
are, are full of themselves might be a way to, to translate it. That they're, um, that they uh, might think that the delay is because God's not acting or that they are the masters of their own destiny. But as we'll see with the pronouncements of woe, that in time, God's both going to judge them at that appointed end, but he's also going to judge them in time as well. So so it's both um, present but also eschatological. But I want to go back to the... Um, uh, in, in verse, where are you? Four, yes. Uh, his soul is puffed up. Um, it, it's, it's, yeah. Um, I mean, we can ask the question, whose soul is puffed up? Is it a generic arrogant or is it the Chaldeans in particular? And we'll see as the... The prophecy works forward um, with these woes. The woes seem to be directed specifically toward the Chaldeans. So, and they're, they're being labeled there the arrogant. So, um, it, you know, I always hate saying this. I, I think it's both and. It's both the Chaldeans specifically, but it's also the arrogant in general. And we'll see that, this, especially to go back to Rob's, this seems to be a very wordy vision. Uh, these woes that he's giving us are are very much in the tradition of wisdom literature. So it's being put forward not just as prophecy, but also as proverb. Yeah, so it becomes a different... Um, we've got a contrast between these proud... Um, that are, act a certain way and these righteous that act another way. But before we get to the, to the proud and the righteous, I want to go back to, um, to this issue of, of Hebrews. Um, and this he who is coming will come and will not delay versus what we have in, um, in Habakkuk. Uh, um, it will surely come. It will not delay. So... What's the difference between those two, and how do we wrestle with that, with that difference? Yeah, so here in Habakkuk, it seems to be emphasizing the fulfillment of the prophecy. Yeah, it, and it can be, and that's the thing about, um, it's not that the Hebrews author is misquoting, um, Habakkuk, it can be translated. I mean, again, as my uh, Hebrew professor used to say, Hebrew is fluid. <laughs> so both are perfectly, um, perfectly acceptable translations. To... Yes, but the author of Hebrew. So that gets to why is the author of Hebrews personifying it in a way. A certain way, where the author of Habakkuk, um, or at least um, the way the Masoretic text, which our Old Testament is translated from, is emphasizing the the emphasis on the prophecy itself rather than the person. Yeah, and there is this um, this 
I mean, there's a tradition of putting this among the Messianic text. Uh, there's a Jewish tradition of putting this among the Messianic text. So again, it's not like Hebrews is completely game-changing here and, you know, okay, we're going to translate it this way to fit our purpose. There's a way these words were always understood, both in terms of this prophecy, but also in terms of a specific person. And it's it's they're really uh, again this is a place where it's it seems like a big change to us in English but and for for them it it would sound I mean it, it if I was saying he and I was saying it it would be the exact same thing so it's it's how they're being under uh, the the purpose the divine purpose in using these words and the author of Hebrews is just as inspired as the author of Habakkuk. And I want to say they're uh, again. That's the way I, I always want to do both. And uh, I want to say that the the author of Habakkuk has in mind the specific uh, fulfillment of this vision that it will not delay. But I also want to to say that he also again, it's the way um, prophets um, you know can can speak words. And they don't understand how the how it works, but they can speak words that apply at point A, B, C, and D. You know, it's sort of they're looking through time this way, and it sort of all blends together. Um, but you know, they're saying more often than they really understand. So it uh, we have this um, this the way the author of Hebrews um, got to flip back to it. Should have two Bibles up here. The way the author of Hebrews is applying these words, um, uh, and let me start back just a, a little, so to give a little context. So back to Hebrews 10. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. So, in a sense, he's addressing the position of these people that are having suffering, um, that have been exposed to reproach and affliction. That's the same thing that Habakkuk, we saw Habakkuk uh, struggling amidst this affliction. So, the words are being addressed to similar situa- situations. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that that you yourselves had a better possession and abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. And then we have another quote from Habakkuk. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. 
So again, it, it's a very similar um, uh, use of the words in the context uh, of Hebrews. Even though he's emphasizing the personification of Habakkuk's prophecy in the person of Jesus Christ, the emphasis is still on on in the midst of suffering and trials to be patient and faithfully endure, to faithfully wait for God's uh, prophecy to be fulfilled. Yeah, so he's, in a sense, he's wrestling with the question on a slightly deeper level. I mean, it's a question for him of, you know, how can God allow, um, allow such an evil thing to take place? Um, And again, it's sort of the way last week, you know, I'd sort of put us forward to the cross. So Habakkuk is looking forward to the cross, in a sense. And so you flip the perspective, and now Hebrews, uh, the author of Hebrews is looking back at these events through the cross. Um, and so he does see them very differently. And again, as we struggle with this question of, of the divine will and human suffering, uh, I, again, it's the, the question of, why a, a sovereign, all-powerful God allows evil things to happen. Um, the, the only place I, I really feel comfortable struggling with this question is the cross. Because there we see um, the, the, the epitome uh, of evil. Here, you know, a perfectly good man suffering an evil death. And sometimes I think we... Because we see the redemptive purposes of the cross, we lose track of how evil of an event, in human terms, it really was. But as, as um, uh, Peter says in Acts, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. And it's that perspective um, that the cross brings. That suddenly, um, you know, it's hard to see this way, but when you flip it and look through the cross... Now you can see how a completely evil action can have completely good results. That hurts my head. <laughs> I don't know about you, but <laughs> uh, the way I, I often, uh, the way my, my friend Bebo says this is, God strikes straight blows with crooked sticks. So that's a good, you know, colloquial way of, of saying it. I'm not sure if that makes any more sense, but <laughs> but that's a um, a way to to think about this issue. Yeah, um, and. And it's not to, to um, it's not to not see the sufferings and hardships as real. Um, I, I think that's you know one thing that we uh, it's not that they're not real. 
Um, and it's not that, you know, in particular situations, they're not undeserved in human terms. Um, but it's this perspective of as we value good and evil, um, from our perspectives, we have to have a reference point. And so our reference point, um, I'm suggesting, needs to be the cross. Uh, because that's how we can come to terms with, again, how people, um, I mean, people do suffer. Uh, I mean, the Jews in no sense deserved what the Nazis did to them uh, in human terms. It was completely undeserved suffering. Now, it's not that the Jews were righteous. It's not that the Jews didn't, um, uh, you know, um, on the you know, eschological end of the era scales are better because of their works than the Nazis. Um, in human terms, um, they suffered unjustly. Uh, but, grief, where was I going? <laughs> the mind works and sometimes it doesn't come around. But it's the way we've got to see things um, uh, in, in multiple senses. So we've got sort of a human scale of balance, but we also have the, the divine scale of balance. And it's at the cross that we see those two things sort of come together. Which then gets to a verse I really want to focus on, which is verse 4. And this is, uh, if there's a verse in Habakkuk that people know and memorize, um, it's this one. This is the most quoted verse from Habakkuk. I would just, I haven't done any statistical research on this, but just guessing. And then it's probably, I can definitely say it's the verse the New Testament um, refers to most frequently. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. And I'll go ahead and, and do verse 5 too. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he is never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. So here we're getting into the substance of the vision, that word behold there, um, you know, see, look. Uh, so now, so we had the preface to the vision, it's not going to tarry, but now we're having this, look, here's the vision itself. And we have this contrast between the proud and the faithful. And notice the... Um, the structure here. Um, behold, his soul is puffed up. It's not upright. And now we have the righteous. So, so if we go A, B, so uh, not upright is B. Now we have B, the righteous, so coupled with the, the, um, the not upright, shall live by his faith. So what, um, uh, what is this verse telling us um, through this contrast? What do we learn about the nature of both righteousness and faith in this verse? He believes the prophecy.
Okay, so he, the the righteous one, will uh, shall live by his faith. So the righteous one will trust that these words will come to truth. Mary. Yeah, the emphasis on humility, and and notice, uh, and I think that's um, as I sort of. Um, wrestled with I wrestled with verse four a lot this week, um, and that you know he's specifically contrasting the arrogant with this uh, um, the righteous. Uh, so you know what is it about um, these faithful that make them righteous? Um, what characteristic? And it's the arrogant. Um, are not upright. And so if we are to sort of complete the phrase, then the righteous are humble. I mean, it's, you know, we get that comparison. Um, Calvin, um, I really love the way um, he expressed it. I can find it in my notes. Um, uh, that faith, um, so faith, what's faith? Faith is that faith which strips us of all arrogance which leads us naked and needy to God. Isn't that a great phrase? Naked and needy to God. That we may seek salvation from Him alone, which otherwise would be far removed from us. So these arrogant, um, these haughty, these proud people who have puffed up souls, they are not considered upright because they have no need of God. Versus the faithful, the righteous, who live by faith. Uh, the contrast is, what does it mean to live by faith? It means to, to go to God, and Calvin's words again, naked and needy. Uh, completely removed of any sense that I deserve to be in the presence of the living God. That I'm bringing anything to the table. But it's only by God that I'm being accepted as righteous. Yeah, it's um, faith there, um, you know, again, it's... Um, uh, we're doing a lot with translation today. Um, so, you know, w- words in one language don't have exact equivalents in other languages. And so as we try to figure out what faith means, faith really has that sense. Um, uh, one commentator um, preferred to translate it here as steadfast trust. And I think that really gets um, to the aspect of faith you're talking about, that 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 faith is trusting in God and being steadfast in that trust. No matter what the circumstances might seem to be saying, continuing on. And that really makes sense in, in light of, of this vision. You know, you know, to go back to the sort of preface to the vision, the vision might seem to be delaying. It might seem to be not coming to pass in, in, in human terms as quickly as you like. But be patient. Be steadfast. Be faithful. The vision is coming to its appointed time. Trust. Pat. 
The, the emphasis there, um, and I want to go to both places you, you pointed to. One, to sort of go back to Abraham. If you'll flip with me to Genesis chapter 15, we get the, we get the words that Paul's quoting there in, in Romans. So here at the beginning of, of, of chapter 15, we have the Lord the word of the Lord coming to Abram in a vision. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what shall you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring breathe. And he, Abram, believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So here we have the promise being given to Abram. And Abram, you know, he's struggling. He's like, you know, you gave me this promise a while back. I'm still childless. Someone else is still going to inherit. And God's saying, no, the promise is going to come through your son. You're old, but you're... Your offspring will be like the stars of the sky. Now, Abram is not in a position to see those offspring. <laughs> you know, he never gets to, to physically um, hold hundreds and millions of great, great, great grandchildren. But he believes. Um, it's his faith there that what God has said will come to pass. And then to go back, um, I want to go in the New Testament. Um, We'll come to Paul using Habakkuk and Romans, but but um, to go back to because we're really to to go back to Pat's um, emphasis on seeing this faith in the Old Testament. So we mentioned earlier that um, the author of Hebrews is quoting Habakkuk, and at the end of of chapter ten, but the, my righteous one shall live by faith. And following on the heels of that, in chapter 11, we have that great faith chapter where the author of Hebrews gives this recounting of the Old Testament with this repeated refrain that all of these works were done not because the works themselves made righteous, but they were all done 
out of faith, out of this steadfast trust in God. It's by faith that Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice. It's by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called out to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. It was by faith Sarah received power to conceive and even when she was past age. Um, it was by faith Abram, when he was tested, offered up Isaac and so on and so on. This, this refrain, it's by faith. Um, so the author of Hebrews there is, is using Habakkuk as the starting point into this great litany of the faithful to get us to, to see the Old Testament as, as these um, not a people made righteous by their works, but a people who are made righteous by being faithful and working for God. Look um, with me um, to another place. Again, the New Testament um, uses this, these words from Habakkuk a lot. And one person has even suggested that the entire book of Romans is um, an extended commentary on, the, on this line from Habakkuk. So we have Paul quoting it in um, verse 17. But let me read verse 16 as well. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For it is for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So Paul um, uses these words to really emphasize... Um, that the faith uh, refers to the trust exercised by the sinner in contrast to any works he might do. So Paul specifically sort of sets up this faith in contrast to works. Whereas Hebrews, we see the faith um, is emphasized on something Marg uh, mentioned earlier. Uh, The author of Hebrews is stressing that aspect of faith which is persevering. Um, pressing on despite all the challenges by suffering and persecution. So we've got um, two authors in the New Testament taking this faith and emphasizing slightly different things. So the author of Hebrews is emphasizing the perseverance in the faith. And Paul in Romans is emphasizing faith as being the sole means of being righteous before God apart from any works. And especially there with Habakkuk, because we see Habakkuk goes on in, in, in this you know, deeper description of, of, you know, he gives us this contrast between the arrogant and uh, the righteous. And as he goes on, if I can find Habakkuk, Nahum, Habakkuk, there it is. Um, you know, emphasizes, you know, the, the gathering of possessions. Um, you know, you know, and so in verse five he goes on: the arrogant man is one who's never at rest; his greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. So, this desire to possess and to keep 
possessing and to think that the reward of a faithful life is in possessions, that person will never be satisfied. Um, That's the situation of the arrogant. In contrast to this humble life of faith, which rests on what God gives alone. Um, that, that, That steadfast trust in God's promise is enough. That you don't need um, all the stuff. Okay. <laughs> I know just a little. <laughs> Enough to be really dangerous. So we rely on the translations. So back up it says the righteous shall live by his faith. Uh, well, again, between the Old Testament and New Testament, again, because so, we got to switch in languages there. So let me just start with Genesis and Habakkuk, since they're the same. So we've got the same pairing of the two words. Um, uh, righteousness and faith are showing up in, in this very same words in both that Genesis passage and here in Habakkuk. Now, our problem um, from, a, from a language standpoint is we don't have a, you know, we don't have a verb form of faith. You know, our verb form of faith is uh, believe. Uh, you know, that's how we... You know, Hebrew has a verb form. Greek has a verb form. We don't have a verb form. So we've got to use two different words to describe something that in original text are used with one word. Um, again, e- either way is... Um, because the, the emphasis there, um, as you try to, um, uh, yeah, what's the difference between faith and faithfulness? Um, it's getting all around um, this issue, I think, that, that Marg raised earlier. Um, and I, I think stead, to think of faith as steadfast trust. So again, sort of thinking, which has that sense of faithfulness. So you can see why. Um, someone might say, well, steadfast trust is faithfulness, whereas faith is just sort of this instant of believing. Uh, I think the word carries both connotations. Again, it's the way um, you know, Hebrew gets away with doing things with one word, that in English we need multiple words to sort of convey the full sense of what this one word means. Right, it's this emphasis on trust that endures. Um, that um, so it's that trust that's steadfast, um, and you know the same sort of sense of steadfast is used of God's uh, hesed love for us. I mean, to to think of how we translate this really important word um, hesed is um, I've got a uh, it's a it's a bluegrass singer that translated Psalms. Um, so, uh, but he, he, I really like his translation for it is steady love um, for a hesed. Uh, you know, sometimes in, in our, we get his covenant love, his steadfast love, but it's that, you know, 
emphasis on love that endures, and that you know it's the same sense of our response back to gay, to God is faith that continues, that endures. Again, I think that's why it's helpful for us to sort of keep the um, Romans and Hebrews together in that sense, because Paul is using the, the, these verbs, these words, in that sort of in that sort of forensic sense, how we're reckoned righteous with God. So that um, uh, you know, what's the role of of, of belief in making us uh, justified in the presence of God? Whereas it's that, but it's, it's also that to have that faith isn't just to, to merely assent, as you say, but to persevere to the end. Which again, is the reason I, I just thinking about this week, the putting steadfast with trust together. So it's, I trust, but it's a trust that endures. It's a trust that leads to all those great things we see people in Hebrews 11 do. All that, you know, it's a litany of faith, but it's also a litany of their righteousness uh, outwardly to the world that people can observe. But that outward righteousness comes from that, that trust. <laughs> and you don't need, again, I, 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 I want to put this out there. You don't, I mean, Hebrew is extremely helpful, but you compare different translations... Um, so, you know, you have three different English Bibles. You can get the same benefit. Um. It's hard to say where the Hebrew goes um, again because they have different. Uh, you know, as as we saw with the earlier verse, you know, um, you can take an impersonal what's rendered in one passage as impersonal and render it personal with the exact same Hebrew phrase. Um, uh, but there is a shift um, with uh, there is to go back to to um, a, an earlier. Um, comparison between the Bacchic use and Paul's use in Roman. Paul does o- omit that word his. 
Um, so in, with Paul, it's the righteous shall live by faith. Um, whereas in this, uh, you know, we're getting that his faith. Um, and, and we could um, talk about some, you know, all right, what's the difference there? Um, but the difference between faith and faithfulness, um, again, I, I think we can sort of, if we think of different words, so just think of his steadfast trust, because I think that covers both our sense of faith and our sense of faithfulness. So maybe that's one way of getting both senses um, together. But to, to get back into Habakkuk and trying to understand how he's particularly using these words, um, here I think he's really contrasting this life as we consider what's righteous, how someone you know, upright and how someone not upright. It's this question of the not upright is someone who is, whose soul is puffed up within them. Versus the righteous is someone who has, who is humble and trusts not in anything of themselves, but in the steadfast trust on God, lives. And again, just as the um, the the point of the contrast, um, uh, you know, so we get the humble in there because we have the emphasis by the contrast of the soul of of being puffed up. So also, we can also sort of, by contrast, so the righteous shall live by faith, and the, you know, the implied contrast is the one whose soul's puffed up shall die. Um, so it's this putting forth the way of life and death. And the way of the arrogant is the way of death. The way of the righteous is to live and to live by faith by a faith that humbles itself, that goes before, again, love Calvin's words, naked and needy before God. All right, well, we've, we've hit the end of our time. Um, next week, we'll, we'll pick up with this uh, maybe a little more and then move on into the substance of the vision where um, God addresses this series of woes upon the Chaldeans. But let me close us with a word of prayer. Gracious God, we confess that as we um, try to uh, understand the history of your dealings with your chosen people and your history of of dealings with the world um, as it ever was, as it is now, and as it will be, um, that we struggle. And our language has a hard time um, grappling with the, the truth that you speak to us. But Lord God, what is perfectly clear and for which we need to have no knowledge of any language other than our own is that our only hope and in, in this life and in the life to come is to humbly cast ourselves before the throne of grace to trust in you and to continue to trust so that in times of suffering and trial um, in times where in our world it it seems like uh, your work is slow or that you're not present that we need to wait 
and endure and that we will see your hand both in history and at the end. Lord God, we, we confess that um, we are uh, a broken people. We confess our struggles, our inability to understand. But it's not our understanding and it's not our lack of doubt. Um, it's not our works that make us righteous before you. It's our faith. In Jesus Christ, the one who bore our sins on the cross and who made us right in your eyes, that we are clothed with his righteousness, not a righteousness of our own filthy rags, but a righteousness that has come to us through our steadfast trust in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.